You are listening to the Coggin Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. In the midst of loneliness and dissatisfaction, Coggin wants to help you learn God's truth in a supportive community that pursues a full life in Jesus. If you want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.cogginchurch.org. already so good. Praise God that you're here. If you brought a, a copy of His Word, you, you need it. And I pray literally you bring it with you every week, especially as we go through Romans together. Romans chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 17. As you're turning to Romans 1, I'd like you to know that this is the perfect series to invite a friend to. Lost or believing. It's the perfect sermon series to invite a neighbor to. That church member that you haven't seen in a while. Uh, maybe a, a, a family member like, there's, there's no hope for them. <laughs> yes, there is. And it's perfect for everyone because what we talk about in the book of Romans is the gospel. And the gospel is for everyone, every day. When you think about the power of the gospel, I want you to picture with me for just a moment, and it connects to our text, a scene. Place yourself about 2,000 years ago um, in Jerusalem, just outside of Jerusalem, dry and rocky, the heat of the day burning down on you. And it's not just the heat that's hot, but it's the tempers. There's a crowd in this scene that I want you to paint in your mind. A crowd is gathered, mostly of men, and they are jeering, they're angry, they're yelling. And all of their anger is pointed at, at one person, a man in a hole, probably buried up to about his arms or his chest where he couldn't move and the jeering angry crowd they have rocks in their hands some of the men are taking their outer garments off so they can get a, a better swing because what they're going to do with those rocks they're going to stone the man that they're angry at to death acts chapter 7 is the scene the man in the hole is named stephen though the crowd is angry foaming at the mouth if you will Screaming, when you look at Stephen, if you look at the picture that Acts 7 paints, he is peaceful. When you look at his face, you see a calm. He's about to be stoned to death, brutally murdered, but there's a calm. I'm sure there was fear, but the text seems to, to paint a very focused, faithful, and calm man. And so what does he do at that moment? He doesn't start pleading for his life. He doesn't start recounting his belief in Christ, which is why he's in the hole, his faith in the gospel, which is why he's in the hole. No, instead he preaches the gospel again, recounting the history of Israel from the Old Testament, basically telling them this man that you crucified on the cross came because he loves you and died for you. They couldn't hear it any longer. They start stoning Stephen to death. And as he's passing from this life into the next, he looks up to heaven. You know what he sees? He literally sees heaven opened. In his mind's eye, he sees Jesus Christ standing. In most of the texts, you see Jesus sitting in accomplishment over what he has accomplished in creation, but he's standing, I believe, in honor of Stephen. And so my question for you is, how could Stephen stand in that hole with such surety in the midst of anger and about to be death, such calm and such peace? Because the Holy Spirit gave him that peace, yes. But also because he was confident in that moment, because he was, what we're talking about today, un 
ashamed of the gospel. We saw unashamedness of the gospel in these waters today, didn't we? Two sweet sisters getting baptized in front of you and friends, admitting that their life was different. Unashamed of the gospel is what we're talking about today. Unashamed of the gospel is where we're going. And unashamed of the gospel is where God wants to bring you for wherever you're at in your life today. That with Paul, with Stephen, with new believers and old believers alike, we would all unify in our pride, not in ourselves. God forbid that. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the first two weeks in the book of Romans, we've been doing what I call introductory work. It's important work. If you haven't been here for those two weeks, you need to go back and listen. That Those texts are important. Paul's been laying the foundation of why he's writing, that he's an apostle and the authority that he's writing by. He's been telling them who he is and he introduces himself to the Roman church and says, hey, I'm thankful for you. He never met him. He kind of exchanges pleasantries. I'm thankful for you. Dan, you did a good job last week of helping us understand that Paul was thankful for that church in Rome, much the same reason that Daniel and I and the rest of the staff are thankful for you because that church in Rome, like Hagen Avenue Baptist Church, is just flowing out the grace of God through faithfulness, and I thank God for being here. But now the pleasantries are over. Now the purpose has been established. Paul says, we gotta get to work from why I'm writing to understand the confidence that he has in the gospel we need to understand where he's going in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. What Paul does here is something only the Holy Spirit could do through him. He basically sets the tone and the theme for the entire book in two verses. Two verses. And then he expands and expands like an onion, peeling the layers back of the gospel. Two verses set the stage for an entire epistle. Two verses, literally in many people's lives, have, have changed them. It was two verses in the Reformation that pushed back against the idea that you could seek salvation on your own, in your own merit, through works, through the law, or even through the sacraments in the context. It was these two verses, especially verse 17, that Martin Luther read and was convinced that it's faith alone that saves him in Christ alone for the glory of God alone as revealed in the scriptures alone. Two verses, maybe two of the most important verses in the entire book of Romans, maybe two of the most important verses in the entire Bible, so much so that some pastors have spent five sermons preaching two verses. You're thinking, oh, is that us? No, no, it's okay. <laughs> we could. I wanted to. I wanted to at least do part one and part two. Uh, but we're going to do these two verses in, in one sermon. Let's, let's jump right into it. Would you stand with me? Romans chapter 1. Destroying the idea of human merit being credited towards salvation, Paul says it's about the gospel. And he says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. This is God's word. Please be seated. I have a prayer for you every week wrapped around the main idea of the text. And here's my prayer that today, like Paul, 
like Paul, we would be unashamed of the gospel. That instead of being ashamed of the gospel, we would instead better understand the gospel and then leave here living worthy of the gospel. The first call today is a challenge. It's a command. Be unashamed of the gospel. That's my call from these verses. My first question was I reading this about Paul. I was like, wow, it's a powerful statement. But why does he say it in the negative? Why does he say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, when he could have just said, I am proud of the gospel? Right? I have confidence in the gospel. Instead, he chooses to use a literary device called a light of these. It's, it's saying something positive in a negative way for emphasis. It's, it's a lot like the modern saying, when you've done something that, that you're proud of, but maybe other people aren't, and you don't care that much, you say, sorry, not sorry. Right? You say something positive in a negative way for what? For emphasis. Yeah, I'm sorry, not sorry for my faith in the gospel. I'm sorry, not sorry about the gospel. Paul is trying to help us understand how proud he is to be associated with it. Being unashamed of the gospel inherently means that there are ways that people are ashamed of the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ. It was very common in Paul's day, to be ashamed of the cross and ashamed of the gospel. Ugh, I want no part of it. It's hard for us to grasp that because we, we, we love the image of the cross and we, we reflect positively on the gospel. And after all, it means good news. And some of you are probably wearing crosses around your neck today. Many of you may even have a, a cross tattooed on your arm. You're so proud of the cross, you're going to tattoo it forever. Probably should talk to your parents about that first, but whatever. Okay, you, you, you put crosses on the wall. In the city of Rome, in the whole Roman Empire, for a long, long time at this point when Paul's writing, the cross was a symbol of shame. You only were murdered or crucified on the cross if you were like the thief next to Jesus, the most vilest of criminals. And therefore, the gospel was a message of shame to much of the Roman Empire. See, in the Roman Empire, it worked a little different. They, they worshipped gods. And there was a God associated with every little thing. So if you had fertility issues in your crops or in your womb, you made sacrifices to do what? To appease that God so they would not strike you down any longer and give you what you want. And it was like this across the board, whether it was crops or money, everything had a God associated with it. And here are the Christians. We will not bow to any other God. It's Christ and Christ alone. This was a problem for the Roman Empire because... They thought, if you're not participating, right, if you're not a friend, you're an enemy. And because you're not making sacrifices to these gods, I mean, that's the reason that our crops aren't growing. That's the reason that we have all these calamities and the financial distress. And they even blamed the Christians for the great fire in Rome that burned most of the city. And therefore, Christians were hated and persecuted. And emperors like Nero would put them on stakes and burn them alive and skin them and kill them and at the very least beat them. And if it was being really nice, just chase them out of their home. So for Paul to say, I am unashamed of the gospel to a Roman church and a Roman culture, it was like fuel for them. It encouraged them. If he can do it, we can do it. We shouldn't be ashamed. We shouldn't hide from it. Let's own it, even if it means we die for it. And many of them did. But your shame of the gospel probably works a little bit different. It's a little bit more in secret. Maybe for you, the shame's in your heart, though you look like you're proud of the gospel on the outside. 
Maybe for you, you have started to lessen some of the claims that Jesus has made. Maybe for you, you, you're proud and you're unashamed of the gospel on the outside in your church attendance. You're unashamed of the gospel and your membership to Coggan Avenue Baptist Church. But secretly on the inside, you're kind of ashamed that Jesus would be so courageous and so really maybe wrong to say that salvation is exclusive to him and him alone. Maybe in your heart, you're like, I don't, I don't know about that. I've got this friend that's a Muslim. I've got this friend that's not a believer. They're in this different lifestyle. Yeah. Maybe the shame for you is not external, it's internal. It's just as bad, if not worse. That you somehow can look unashamed and healthy on the outside, but be decaying and dying from the lies of the world on the inside. Maybe for you, you've tried to redefine what Jesus says about things like sin because you want to live in it, like wealth because you want to chase it. For personal lifestyle preferences because you have friends that want to live in it. You redefine love as you see it, not as Jesus has defined it along with sin. This is still shame. Just you hide it. It's the worst kind of shame because you don't actually say it. But it's still there. It reminds me of a mesquite tree, of all things. I work with mesquite trees a lot, and they're, they're tricky. I saw a mesquite tree yesterday. that It looks good on the outside. I brought a picture with me. When I walked upon it, the bark was strong. The tree was tall. It was gigantic. It felt, looked, everything seemed right. But then when I started putting the axe to it, about halfway through it, the, the axe just went all the way in. What did that tell me? Well, from the color of blackness that I saw on the inside, it was dying from the inside out. Which made this tree what to me? Dangerous to me and those around me. Holy Spirit's trying to tell you something this morning if you're listening. That tree could have fallen on me and hurt me or somebody else. Look good on the outside, but decaying on the inside. That describes some of you that are here today. Because of the lies of the world that has poisoned your soul about the gospel that you're trying to make for yourself, you're decaying on the inside and you become dangerous to the friends around you that depend on you, to the spouse that loves you, to the family that needs you, to the gospel that you're supposed to be proclaiming. Maybe the only thing you're unashamed of yourself that's popular today, not to be unashamed of the gospel, but just I'm, ashamed of, I'm unashamed of me because I'm going to do it my way. It's what I want. Not Paul. Paul says, I boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm proud of nothing in me except the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul didn't doubt it. He lived under it and was proud of it. Of it. He did not cave for society or culture. He may have adapted his technique with every city that he went to, but the one thing that he never changed was the truth of the gospel. So you can get ready for some change. It's probably going to come. We may use more guitars or less guitars. I don't know. We may have a bigger screen or no screen. I don't know. More pianos or keys. I don't know. Water. I mean, I don't know. Drums or no drums. I don't know. Because all of it can change. But as long as I'm breathing and I'm serving as your pastor, the one thing that will not change is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that through this series, we would grow in our unashamedness of the gospel. 
We would decrease in our pride for ourselves and what we want and grow in the Gospel flow so that the world can see it. That the Gospel wouldn't just be another religious teaching that you choose because it pleases you, but that the Gospel would be air and water to your soul that nourishes you every day. That's my prayer for our congregation. Are there reasons that you shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel? Absolutely, there's many. Let's just start with verse 16. Why be unashamed of the gospel? I'll tell you, first of all, Paul is unashamed of the gospel because as he says already in verse 1, it's not his gospel, it's the gospel of God. And that should mean something. Which means it's the power of God to save everyone who believes. In the Son of God, which brings salvation through the Spirit of God, what Paul's trying to say is it's all God. Why be unashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power, not of man, not of Coggin, but of the very God of the universe. Every part of what Paul says about the gospel makes it clear that it belongs to God. It's not just another human philosophy pontificating about the potential path to enlightenment. No, it's not a human message at all. It's God's message. It's God's good news. It's God's plan, not ours, which means what? We can't change it. It's not yours to manipulate. You don't own it. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And if we change it to fit the culture or the society, it's no longer the gospel, which means it's no longer good news. It's not us that acts. It's, God's that, it's God that acts. It's, humanity can't get to God, nor have we really ever been able to get to God in our history. What do we do? We fall and we fail. That's what we do. That's what I do, at least, if you're anything like me. God always follows through. God always keeps his promises. It wasn't man that went to God in the garden. It was God that went to man despite their sin. It was God that went to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's God that went to Joseph and David and everyone else. And it was God that came to us in the person of Jesus Christ to live a life for us, to die an atoning death in our place. And it was the power of God that raised him from the dead, not the power of man. And it's still the power of God that brings conviction of sin, not your keen attentiveness to your desire for a Savior. Hmm. The gospel is all God. It's his power revealed to you for salvation. We're going to continue to dive in deep throughout the book of Romans, but let me say at this point that apart from salvation, you have no access to this power. And in fact, if you're sitting here flippant about that today, apart from salvation, you have no understanding of this power. That's why you don't desire it. And I pray that God changes it, which brings us to our second reason that we should be unashamed of the gospel. Not only does it belong to God as the power of God, it's our only means of salvation. Paul says it is the power of God for salvation. Now here's a word that we use a lot, but it means very little to us. We do this with words in our society like gentlemen. It used to mean something. Now it hardly means anything. Salvation used to mean something. But we've watered it down through the years so that we can just say, I'm saved, and that's the whole of it. Whatever that means. I'm saved. Okay. Let's, let's appreciate the word a little bit more by understanding it a little bit better today. My starting question, if we're going to dive in to understand 
that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, to understand salvation, ask yourself the question, well, then what am I saved from? That's a great question. The simple answer is you're saved from sin. To better understand what we're saved from, we can travel back to Genesis chapter 3 and see the difference between what they had then and what we have now apart from Christ. See, man was created perfect in perfect communion and connection with God. All that changed in sin. And we will remain disconnected today. In, to truly understand the power of God in salvation, we must understand the human predicament of a being in sin instead of being in right relationship with God. One of the main reasons that I'm unashamed of the gospel is because it saved me from the consequences of my sin, which created a separation between me and God. Why? Because Jesus took my place. Famous English pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was also a medical doctor and a pastor of Westminster Chapel for over 30 years, he, he helped me this week by showing me three things that we are delivered from through the power of God and salvation. And I want to share this with you so that we all grow together and have an appreciation for what it means to be saved. Number one, being saved by the power of God means that we are delivered from the guilt of sin. You ever think about the guilt of sin that you live in apart from Christ or that you lived in apart from Christ and before Christ? The law makes it very clear. Go look at the law in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and you'll see quickly that you can't do it, nor could you ever do it, and you are standing before God guilty, condemned by the law, and you have no way out of it on your own. You are guilty. The good news is that Jesus Christ on the cross became guilty for you so that you could be declared innocent before the God of the universe. Number two, being saved by the power of God means that we are delivered not only from the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin. Have you thought about how powerful sin is and po how powerful sin has been in our world apart from Christ since the garden? Like Adam and Eve, we're in sin. They weren't born into it, but we are. And then we live in sin on our own. And this puts us under the power of not only sin, not only death, but the enemy. And we've been living under his power for generations and generations, and you have no ability to be out from under the power of Satan on your own. But the gospel tells you that the power of God can be yours through faith and the gospel. So you're no longer under the power of sin and Satan, but you have access to, and the power can be flowing through you of the very God of the universe. This is awesome. We are delivered from the power of sin and the guilt of sin, but we are also in salvation delivered from the, what Jones calls the pollution of sin. I love that word. I don't think about that near enough. That we have been tainted from the garden. We've been corrupted in our very nature from the garden by sin. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.4 that through Christ being in us and us being in him, we, we are freed from the corruption of the world, the pollution of the world. And I think that's how most of us think about it, like that, that all the corruption and the pollution, it's out there. Those people struggle with that. But Paul makes it clear in the book of Romans, especially Romans chapter 7, that the corruption and the pollution because of sin is in here. It's what twists you and corrupts you like that mesquite tree from the inside out. Your very nature is polluted. 
But isn't this good news about the gospel? That Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead so that you could be what? Born again. Now there's life to that term. Your old nature is gone, illustrated in baptism and death. And you have a new nature in Christ that forever you will enjoy him with his nature in you for all of eternity. It's unbelievable. And one day, we will be faultless like him in heaven. A final thought before leaving the subject of salvation so we can appreciate it all the more that we can be unashamed of the gospel because in salvation, we have been saved from something amazing that I rarely think about. We have been saved from being separated from God. Now, I love forgiveness. I love the idea of deliverance. But what I love the most is that I and my sin have been reconciled back into right relationship with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. So just like the Garden of Eden, anytime, anywhere, any circumstance, I can have communion with him. Are you kidding me? That no matter how alone I feel, I'm never alone. No matter how bad it gets, he's always there with me to get me through that situation that God is always near because God is in here. been saved from being separated from God. That is praiseworthy. This is why we cannot be ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power unto salvation, which is an amazing thing, delivered from sin and reconciled back to him. Are you kidding me? It's awesome, but, but it's only, Paul says, for those who believe. Those who believe that Jesus has paid their price on the cross. Those who believe that God raised him from the dead. But because he did, and I believe in that, I am proud of the gospel. Personally, I am unashamed of the gospel. I believe in the gospel, and I would die for the gospel, and you should feel the same way just as Paul did. Now we'll spend many messages to discuss what Paul says next. He says it's first for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. We'll dive into that in chapters 9 through 11. But for now, take that to mean and be a reminder of the universal power of the gospel. If it's for Jew and Gentile, that's everybody in that world, which means it's for everybody today. And sometimes when you think of everybody, you don't think of anybody. So let me just remind you, it's for you and you and you and you. Every individual here today, the gospel's for you unto salvation and daily nourishment. Yes, that means the gospel's for your neighbor they don't like very much. The gospel's for that family member that you think is too far from him. The gospel is for everyone. Now that we've understood verse 16 quickly, look at verse 17. And look at the power of the gospel. See, the gospel has power for you because it reveals the righteousness of God to you. And there's another term that we let pass right by and we're like, ah, I don't really understand it, so let's just move on past it. No, we need to understand the righteousness of God phrase in this verse. It, it, it help you understand the gospel and it'll help you through the rest of the book of Romans. Douglas Moo points out that these two nouns, righteousness and God, to form the phrase, the righteousness of God, are put together for a purpose and a priority in the book of Romans. Paul uses this phrase, the righteousness of God, nine times in the New Testament. That's a lot, by the way. Eight of those nine times, Paul uses the righteousness of God phrase in the book of Romans. So we need to pay attention to it and ask yourselves, what does it mean? I want to tell you three things it means, and all of them are awesome for you. Number one, the righteousness of God, many scholars would argue it means that that is an attribute of God. And they're right. 
God is righteous. He is right. He is just. He always does what is just, and he always does what is right. Why is that important for me? Because you're not. It doesn't feel good to say that or hear that, but you're not righteous, which means that God is just to judge you in your unrighteousness because you are not like him. This is a problem. But there's a solution. It's called the gospel, which tells us that at Calvary, Jesus made what I call the great righteousness exchange. What Jesus did on Calvary is he took all of your sin and all of your unrighteousness and says, give it to me. I'll take it and bear it for you. And what does he give you in an exchange? His righteousness, which is the righteousness of God. Listen, if you haven't taken that deal, you should probably get on it pretty quick. You're not going to get a better deal than that ever. That Jesus takes all of the icky stuff and bears it on his body in your place and he gives you all the good stuff. The righteousness of God, which allows you to be in the perfect presence of God forever and have access to it every minute of every day forever. That's a good exchange. Which means this, not only is the righteousness of God an attribute, an attribute of God, but because Christ has imputed his righteousness to us through repentance and faith, it also means, number two, that the righteousness of God phrase is a gift that we have in Christ. That you too can be righteous in the eyes of God through faith in Christ. It's hard to even say that statement, Billy. I mean, that's, that's hard to process. That's what Paul is saying here. The righteousness of God is an attribute. It's a gift, but it's also the third thing that the righteousness of God means. It's, it's, it's an activity. Not that you're doing, but that God does for you. Think about it. From the beginning of time, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, even through the new and the cross of Christ, that's what God has been doing. He's been going out of his way to pursue you, to bring you back into right relationship with him like we had in the garden. You know what that tells me about God? is that he loves me. Let that sink in. That God pursued you and found you and despite you, he saved you and he gave his righteousness to you that other people could see him in you and you would be able to be with him and like him throughout time. Oh, the righteousness of God is worthy to think about and to celebrate. All three of these are important. And Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That just means from generation to generation. Not just human generation to generation. Remember, faith is not in your genealogy, but from faith to faith. Every generation that has faith, every person that has faith, has the righteousness of God in them and flowing through them. And then Paul, like getting ready for that final jump on the diving board. You know, you've been out there and just, you, you bounce a little bit and you take that final jump and what he's going to do, he's going to land on verse 17 and what's he going to do? He's going to launch into the rest of the book. And what's the last part of verse 17? That the righteous will live by faith. Hold on to faith with me for just a second. If we miss faith, we miss everything. 
If we miss faith, we miss the gospel, forgiveness, salvation, and all the benefits having a personal relationship with the king of the universe. See, we accept the gospel not by doing, but by receiving, by faith. Not by works, but by faith. This faith in God, which gives us his righteousness, even that faith is a gift. Have you received the gift of faith to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Final question. If you haven't, I'm begging, if you'd let me, one-on-one or right now, pleading to ask God to help you understand faith. You can't do it on your own. Plead with God if you're sitting here struggling and you have all these doubts and the only thing you're unashamed about is yourself and faith is far from you. Be smart enough to know that's not the place where God wants you to be and plead with him for understanding. And then plead with him that he would give you the gift of faith, something you cannot get on your own and receive salvation. We would love to talk to you about that more after the service, but if you're here and you've already received the gift of faith and you believe in the gospel, here's how you should always end a sermon. So what? So what? What does it mean for you? Do other people see that you're unashamed of the gospel? I pray that this message will help you live out that faith in your family, among your friends, at school, at work, wherever. And then when people see you, they say, there's a man, there's a woman that is unashamed of the gospel. We hope that you have enjoyed this sermon audio from Coggin Avenue Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about us or know what it means to follow Jesus, visit us online at www.cogginchurch.org.